<clears throat> so the title for tonight is The Razor's Edge, <clears throat> the, the Middle Way. I'm going to do an introduction into the Four Noble Truths, and this will be kind of an ongoing theme. My hope is actually to really give an overview like tonight, and then take it piece by piece and unpack it. Um, because to me, like I said, the, uh, the Dharma is really like those Russian dolls that I've just been using as an analogy for a long time, where you just have one doll, and then you take it off, and then there's another doll that unpacks it, and there's two, and then... You know, and then it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and, fi- and more finite. And really, the, the Buddha actually taught that way. That his first teaching was all-encompassing. And very few people understood. And so he was like, oh. So he tweaked it. So he, uh, even though he fully understood, uh, he found it challenging to... To, uh, in the beginning, and it, you know, he got better as a teacher, maybe along the line. So I'm going to kind of pick up from where I left off last week. So the Buddha sat under the tree, became fully awakened. The battle with Mara kind of ended there uh, last week. I'm going to kind of take it up from that that point. So if you didn't hear last week's talk, then it should be online soon. So you could listen to it at our website. So shortly after the Buddha's enlightenment, you know, he set out to find his, uh, his buddies, his homies, his ascetics, his, these five ascetics that he had practiced with uh, prior to really breaking off, taking a little food, a little milk, and recognizing that um, the extreme kind of asceticism wasn't actually the path. So in essence, he, he was recognizing the middle way right then. But then after he had reached the goal, Nibbana, freedom, he sat in this blissful state for a time, and then was kind of... Um, you know, like I said last week, perplexed about teaching, right? Wasn't sure if people were going to get it. He was skeptical that others would be able to understand. There's this, I'm kind of sub, uh, what's it, paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing uh, a quote that I've read numerous times. But basically, you know, this, he said something like, you know, this path was so difficult, so challenging. And the the... Minds of men, men and women, right? So much desire, desire so strong, greed, hatred, delusion, so prevalent. I don't know that people will understand. I don't know that people will get it. This was his kind of, the perplexity. Then he searched his mind and he set out, uh, he recognized, oh yeah, well there was these five guys that I was hanging out with. Not eating, you know, standing on one leg, doing extreme yoga. I, you know, maybe aerial yoga or something, you know. Just extreme stuff. And, um, and, he, and he recognized they're close. They were almost there. If they can just be open to the middle way, 
I'm sure that they would get it. So he set out. So he walked from Bodhgaya to uh, what's actually it was it Banars, which is just outside of Varanasi. So it's you know it took me a day on train to get there. So. So like I said, you know, he was skeptical. So the Buddha talked of seeing, you know, in this, like I talked about last week, I'm just going to kind of rephrase, you know, the whole, the pond story with the, that we each have this potential for awakening. That that's part of the benefit of being born in to this realm, the human realm, having a human body. Because we have a, we have the potential for full awakening. Because of, you know, just the way it's all set up. Our minds, the, this body, our ability to discern animals, uh, you know, uh, hungry ghosts, and uh, what are considered the heavenly realms. You know, kind of Brahman, Brahmas or uh, angels don't have the same ability. So even though he was skeptical, he decided to give it a try. And it, you know, some some say that the middle way was actually his first teaching, because really he had to convince his um, his friends. You know, he had to con- convince these five ascetics who were really kind of rigid in their thinking and actually renounced him when he took rice milk, and they were like. You food eater, you know. You, you know, you, you like rest a little bit. What's your like? What is your deal? You know, you're clearly not on the right path. And uh, and that's when he left them. And he said, "I found this way. I'm going to follow it." Which is indicative, actually, of of the Buddha, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, that he never accepted any one teacher or one way. He was always kind of. Uh, just really used his own internal compass, his own wisdom, his own wisdom, uncovering his own path. So in this middle way, you know, uh, what's taught is, and what the Buddha kind of came to is, you know, this understanding that one must find a balance between the extremes of kind of the religious life, right? Kind of like what the ascetics were doing, um, and what was common in that time, and even in this, even in, in our time now, you know, there's this extreme, this extreme, you know, we could call it right or left wing, if you want to, both issues, right? Extremism, fanaticism, right? or just rigidity in thinking can be a real problem. Right? Uh, this is kind of what the Buddha, what the Buddha was pointing to. So this, this the extremes of kind of the religious life. Uh, the awakened one talked of the razor's edge. One side, extreme hedonism, right? This kind of uh, seeking pleasure without end, addiction, greed, wanting. This, you know, this kind of insatiable, it's called tanha, right? Thirst or hunger. This insatiable kind of need for pleasurable experience, which is impossible. And the sooner we realize that, the less, or the more likely we are to come to this middle path. 
So that's one end. The extreme of hedonism or pleasure seeking. And you know, some of the ways I've thought about this is the way it comes out for us is in a wanting or needing to be right. This is also part of this kind of uh, addiction, addiction to being right or addiction to comfort. Arrogance, conceit. Conceit is actually a really big uh, obstacle in the mind and heart for freedom. Uh, and it's talked about a lot in, in, the Buddha, in the Buddhist teachings. So spiritual superiority. These are the, some of the translations that I've made in, in, just in my own practice, seeing how this kind of extremism affects us. So spiritual superiority. Oh, you know, I'm so much more enlightened than that person. They don't recycle. <laughs> you know, they eat meat. It's, this is conceit. It's suffering. Separation. Or a lack of humility, right? kind of the same. It's like it's a, and there's even a, you know there's even the false humility that arises, right? Which it sometimes can be the uh, same, you know, the same thing as conceit, yeah? where it's like, oh, you know, like well, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Can't really think of anything right now. <laughs> but no, I do it. <laughs> So the other extreme, you know, being to disconnect completely from the world, from the body, to try to check out. Such as, you know, living our lives in a cave, growing moss, uh, seeking the pleasure of enlightenment through extreme avoidance of the world of worldly problems. So this is kind of uh, a, a way we can look at these two extremes in the here and now. So how do you find the middle way as lay people? Right. So sometimes uh, this this second way, this kind of disconnecting, and you know, I, I know a few people that have. Um, I mean, I, I, well, here let me just rephrase it this way: it can be very helpful to disconnect and actually go in, go inward. And it's actually talked about, the Buddha talked about it on numerous occasions. But even monastics had to stay connected. It was part of the practice. So that's why there's alms rounds. That's why there's dana. That's why there's this reciprocity in the whole generosity piece I was talking about a few weeks ago. Right? To stay connected. Because it's, it's actually, in some ways, it's got its own suffering, but its own bliss to just sit in a cave. But there's a way in which there's a dis- there's a separation there, and and you know in some in some places pe- that happens people do that. So the middle way is a path of balance, spelled out in the eightfold path. So yeah, it's really I think it's really relevant today. Um, you know, also the consumption of products, technology, so this kind of the hedonism piece, right? Uh, consumption of uh, products, of technology, uh, drugs, intoxicants, versus the complete separation from society, right? Off the grid, remember that? 
So for, for uh, the Buddhist perspective, from the Buddhist perspective, it's really we need to find the middle way there. Another example I was thinking of is uh, political extremism versus kind of doing nothing to create change. Right? So being kind of so overly involved and so rigid and taken by you know, whatever. Obama is the only president for the rest of it. It should actually be a dictatorship and, it, and the dictatorship should only be, you know, Obama. You know, this actually happened last election. I don't know if you guys remember that. Where there was this, like, there was an extreme Obamaism that took place. Not that it was a bad thing or whatever. Just, just it happens. Versus the, just kind of the passivity of doing nothing, being totally disengaged with what's, you know, what's happening in the world. So how do we find a middle way there? So the Buddha wanted people to understand and awaken in his first talk. He was kind of, you know, this is what I, 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 I imagine. He was walking, so he walked from Bodh Gaya to, to Benares. I, I can't remember exactly how to say it. It's the old Varnasi, basically also known as the Deer Park. So he's walking in this blissful, mindful, fully awakened state, trying to think about, I would I imagine, right? all right, how, how am I going to present this? Like, how do I, you know, how do I let people know what I've realized, what I've recognized? And there's this story that I really like where uh, he, as he's walking, he comes across uh, some other fellow travelers. These kind of these three three men that were also traveling along the same road, and they really recognized, like, wow, there's something different about this guy. And they kind of come up to the Buddha and they say, "This is." Some people would say this is actually his first teaching. And they say, "You know, what are you? A, what are you? Are you a deva?" You know, an angel? And the Buddha said, no. He said, are you a man? And the Buddha said, no. He said, are you a, are you a king? Like what, what, because they really notice his, his glow, his complexion, and his kind of, uh, I don't know, aura, if you will. And he just kept saying like, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not an angel, I'm not a god, I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not just a man, and I'm not a king, or anything like that. He just kept saying no, and then they're like, well, so what are you? And he said, you know, the Buddha. I'm awake, awakened, the awakened one. And they were like, huh? Like they didn't, I mean, you know, like the, the way the story goes, they didn't really get it. And the Buddha was like, okay, well, let's move on. And as he was moving on, he, had, he was reformulating, all right, so that didn't work. So I can't just say that. And as he goes to the uh, to his ascetics, <laughs> that's just that's my that's the way I create the story in my mind anyway. <laughs> so he wanted people to under, to understand in his first talk the whole teaching, and so he, that's what he focused on the whole teaching and the path of awakening in his first talk. This is known as the Four Noble Truths. Or the turning of the wheel of, of the Dharma. And it's, you know, it's talked about like this. It's uh, spoken in this way by his, one of his senior disciples later on named Sariputta. Sariputta was kind of the second. Like the Buddhist, uh, he, had, he had his you know, left and his right hand dudes. 
And Sariputta was one of them, fully awakened, uh, monastic. And this is what uh, Sariputta says. Friends, uh, just as the footprint of any living being that walks can be placed within the elephant's footprint, all the wholesome states of the Buddha's teachings can fit in the Four Noble Truths. And this uh, is also very similar to the, the kind of uh, Russian doll analogy that I use, right? They all fit into this with the one, you know, the one figure, the one teaching, but also can be unpacked. So the way that this works is, or the way, the way that I understand it is that he went and he approached the five ascetics and they were like, you know, hey, look, there's Siddhartha and he's coming back, you know. They were kind of joking. They were like, you know, should we offer him a seat? Should we be disrespectful and turn our, turn our heads? Should we not even acknowledge him? Because he's left you know, this practice. And as he approached, they also started to recognize, oh, there's something different about him. And so they became curious. And then they, they did offer him a seat and he sat down and he gave the... the Teaching of the middle way first, what I was just, which I was just talking about, and then he spoke about the the four noble truths. And so, you know, they can be broken down in lots of ways. The noble truths. Actually, I'll read a little quote from the Buddha. So this is actually. Around the, this is actually uh, supposedly this first teaching. Yeah. The Buddha said, And I discovered that profound truth so difficult to perceive, difficult to understand, tranquilizing and sublime, which is not to be gained by mere reasoning and is visible only to the wise. The world, however, is given to pleasure, delighted with pleasure, enchanted with pleasure, Truly, such beings will hardly understand the law of conditionality. The, uh, the dependent origination of everything. Yet there are beings whose eyes only have, a, only have been covered a little with dust. They will understand the truth. So this is kind of right, you know, as he's thinking about going on. And I'll just give my... It goes on, he breaks down each, each one. But I'll, I'll give my version. Let me actually just read. This is another um, teaching from the Buddha. So all of these teachings are known as the texts or uh, the Pali Canon. And they are um, compiled, transcribed, translated over hundreds of years, but they're, uh, they actually are the most accurate. Uh-huh. So it's, it, was, uh, written, it was spoken and then written, you, you know, hundreds of years later, and then translated. So, you know, we do the best we can. But they're called the, the Nakayas. Yeah, this is the, the Pali Canon, or there's a series of them. 
So this is, uh, this is called uh, Dharma as Medicine. Just as if there were a beautiful pond uh, with a pleasant shore, its water being clear, agreeable, cool, and transparent. And a man came by, scorched and exhausted uh, by the heat, fatigued, parched, and thirsty. This is suffering. And he would step into the pond, bathe and drink, and thus all his plight, fatigue, and feverishness are allayed. So also, dear sir, whenever one hears the Buddha's Dharma, uh, be it discourse, mixed prose, explanation, or marvelous statement, all one's plight, fatigue, and the feverishness, uh, and the feverish burning of the heart are allayed. So Dharma as medicine. So I'm just going to give kind of a brief overview of the of the Four Noble Truths tonight, and then uh, I'll actually I'm going to unpack each one. The first Noble Truth really lets we're going to really look at suffering, because the Buddha was very clear. We have to understand suffering, not just go, oh yeah, I I get it. There's suffering because we've been doing that our whole lives, but we actually need to look at it, really understand suffering. Don't turn away. That's actually the issue. So uh, one of the ways I just heard this, uh, the first noble truth, is that all beings, or that there is suffering in this world. Right? There is suffering in this world. So just acknowledging it. And the way that I heard it uh, translated or spoke about recently by a friend of mine, Pascal, is there's something not quite right here. You know, I talked about that a little bit uh, last week, you know, that kind of early on in my own life, you know, kind of there's something not quite right here. Or the, when the Buddha, uh, when Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, kind of went out and saw the, the, you know, the three heavenly messengers and then the fourth, the monk, he recognized there's something not quite right here, says the first noble truth. So the Buddha acknowledged that there is an inherent uh, problem or dis-ease, dissatisfaction in this world or in this realm, being the human realm. The Buddha acknowledged that not all life is suffering. This is a mistranslation you hear a lot. The the first uh, noble truth is often described as, or has been anyway, um, that life is suffering. No, that's not it. That, but inherent in this life is suffering. There's a difference there. It's a, it's a subtle difference, but pretty clear. The first, uh, all life is suffering, doesn't, there's no way out of that. You're just locked into that. But the fact that, there, that in this life, there is, it's actually like there's a choice to suffer or not suffer. That's the way out. So the Buddha was really clear he was specific in saying, uh, birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair is suffering. Not obtaining what one wants, suffering. And then I actually, attaining what one wants is suffering. 
And I actually have read that in, in another. It's not in this translation, but it's in another. So in short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. So clinging is suffering. And, you know, that kind of... So much it's uh, not accepting things just as they are is suffering. Or wanting things to be different than they are is suffering. So the five aggregates is a whole complicated teaching, but I'll just go through them briefly because they're mentioned here, right? That basically this last, you know, in short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. I will unpack that in, in the future. But I'll just tell you what these five aggregates are. Aggregate, right? Uh, actually, the, the, the word is kandas uh, in Pali, which really just means uh, lumps of stuff. Just the lumps of stuff. And this is really what the Buddha pointed to as uh, what we are. Lumps of stuff. Mental form, or material form rather. Material form. Rupa. Everything in the material realm. Feelings. uh, Really known as Vedana. uh, Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The feeling tones. Uh, Perception. Right? Discerning the qualities of things, including recognition and memory. Mental formations. Uh, all wholesome and unwholesome mental factors, such as compassion, volition, and attachment. So it's all kind of connected. And then the fifth, uh, consciousness, awareness. Awareness through uh, contact between object and its corresponding organ or sense door. So an example, sound is the uh, is sound consciousness, ear consciousness, that kind of thing. There, there's actually a sound consciousness and an ear consciousness. Light consciousness, eye consciousness, seeing. This, this is kind of a way to exp- explain it. So these are known as the five aggregates or the aggregates of attachment. It's okay if you totally didn't understand any of that because I'll totally break break it down. It's confusing and very important. So just another piece here. Consciousness um, is often ca- uh, called chitta, right? Which really means mind-heart. Uh, consciousness, um, you know, it's, it's in connection or means, you know, a state of mind or units in the stream of mind, momentary duration, uh, mental object. So this is a way of kind of looking at like the flame-like process of our minds. When you look at a flame, or even just when your eyes are closed and you're following the breath, it's not one consistent breath. It's actually like there's an in-breath, there's a space, there's an out-breath, you know. But sometimes it just seems like it's just one breath. But there's actually a number of parts. There's before the breath, middle breath, end breath. Moment before the the in breath, so it's like just like that. Same things happening with our minds, but extremely fast. The second noble truth: Why? Why is this happening? Why is something not quite right? What's the deal? Why is there suffering? Suffering is caused. This is the. This is the 
kind of the diagnosis. Suffering is caused by selfish and self-centered craving. Period. Clinging, attachment, meaning, identifying with any part of desire and clinging um, to having that thing, right? Or state uh, being anything other than it is. So in, in essence, this clinging, this craving is resistance to anicca. And anicca is impermanence. So that which arises passes away. Resistance to that is the cause of suffering. Sounds kind of simple, right? Like, oh, just don't cling to anything, ever. And you'll be happy. And, and not have suffering. And the more you cling, the more you suffer. It's, that's essentially what the Buddha was saying, and that's essentially what has been kind of, you know, talked about over and over again. So the third, uh, the third noble truth, there must be another way. Okay? So, there's something not quite right here. Why? Why is this? Why is it happening? Why do I continue to suffer? Right? Why do I continue to do the same things over and over again? You know, why do my patterns keep coming back? So the, the you know these a lot of these you know this is psychology you know this is psychotherapy this is uh, this is the Buddha's uh, uh, prescription for how to heal the mind. There must be another way. So maybe trying to do something different. So selfish cra- craving can be destroyed, completely uprooted. Some people don't like the fact that I use the language destroyed, like my, you know, my friend Noah uses meditate and destroy. What are we destroying? Greed must be destroyed. Hatred must be destroyed. Delusion, ignorance must be destroyed. Why destroy? Because that's what happens. Light and dark can't live in the same place at the same time. Some people use the word uproot. Okay, So yeah, you uproot something and then what happens? It dies. Because it's not being fed. Destroy. This is what the Buddha is pointing to. It's actually used, that language is actually used. Hmm... So selfish craving must be destroyed so that one can come to a complete end of suffering. So this is really pointing to the, in this third, uh, this third noble truth is the prognosis. The prognosis is good. There is a way out. We don't have to continue to cause suffering for ourselves. We can change. We can do things different. But it takes work. The work to be done. So uh, along the way to complete liberation is the lessening of suffering based on our own actions. This is, you know, something I definitely know. This is a new, kind of a new way I've been looking at it recently because there's so much talk of, uh, you know, the Buddha's enlightenment. Like it was a one-of-time event. But actually, that's not the case. There's a series of enlightenments, right? 
learning how to how to not be so taken away by the sensations of the body. He learned that long before he found the middle way. Learning to discern in the mind between skillful and unskillful mental states. Uh, aiming the attention towards mental, state, mental states that were wholesome, is what it's called. Kusala, wholesome. Or akusala, unwholesome. Right. So greed, hatred, delusion, feeding this kind of mindset versus kind of generosity, kindness, happiness, joy. So these are all prior to his full awakening. So it's thought of as, as enlightenment, which I, I really like that. It sounds much more doable. So the fourth foundation. Oh, oh, there's something else about the third foundation. Is we're not saying uh, complete freedom from pain. And I'll talk about that more next week when I break down the difference, kind of suffering and, and pain. The Buddha, after his enlightenment and throughout the rest of it, he, he was a man. He taught, he walked everywhere. He lived, you know, into his, I think, late, 80, late 80s, early 90s. I can't remember exactly. He taught for, 40, for 45 years after his uh, enlightenment. And he was like 36 when he became fully awakened. So he was an older dude. And... Um, He had back pain. Uh, he had indigestion. You know, there's all these stories of you know him talking about just being an, a human being, having difficulty because the body gets old and illness. He did not escape, and and actually death he did not escape. But freedom from suffering is what he escaped from, which is the attachment. So this is kind of uh, another part of the, you know, the third noble truth. There must be another way, but it doesn't mean that you're avoiding the vicissitudes of life. That's still going to happen. Sorry. And you know, I want to say, if anyone in any spiritual tradition tells you that you know that you that will be the way out, don't ever believe them. They're lying to you. How could they know? How could that be true? If all that we are is these lumps of stuff, and if the mental and emotional healing is really the part, from the Buddhist perspective, makes the most sense to me. That that's really, that's where all of the kind of acceptance and, and the, the happiness can come from that. That, you know, uh, this kind of believing in something that can't be um, verified to me I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, you know, if you want to go that direction, have fun. But to me, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense. So I don't go that direction. So, fourth noble truth. There is a different way. There's a way out. What is that? That suffering can be destroyed by the following eightfold path, also known as the gradual awakening, the gradual path, the work to be done, the work to be done. You know, and this breaks down into three main points, three main baskets, if you will. 
Um, and then again, they'll be. I'll break them down a little bit now, just kind of saying them and giving it a sentence about them. And then over the next several weeks, we'll be doing more. Yeah. So the first uh, ethical integrity. Okay, so we recognize that there's suffering. First noble truth. That we have, there's a cause of suffering. It's our own selfish and self-centered uh, craving, right? and that there's a way out of that. And that's mainly going to be through the cultivation of mind and the living in a, in a good way in the world. So this is, this is the first kind of uh, reaching out. Ethical integrity. And, you know, uh, again, my friend Pascal was talking uh, about the Fornable Truths a while ago. And um, he was talking about... Uh, really, the, 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 the precepts are about... Not spilling out our suffering onto the world. That we have suffering in our hearts and our minds. It's happening. And that the ethical integrity is about uh, not spilling out over. And it happens, right? When you get pissed off and you yell at someone or, you know, this is spilling out. Sometimes it happens really big and sometimes it happens just a little bit. But the hope is that we can learn to be more mindful, more aware, more attentive to when we're causing suffering. And then also to be forgiving and compassionate to ourselves when that happens because we're all still suffering. Right? Even me. In case you had any doubt. (laughs) So ethical integrity. Wise speech. Abstinence from falsehood. Slander, harsh speech, and useless words. This is kind of some of the ways it's talked about. Wise action, abstinence from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, and uh, intoxicants. So again, I'll break these all down. I talked about them a few, few weeks ago too. Wise livelihood, avoiding any means of livelihood that involves harm or exploitation of others. And actually, in the time of the Buddha, this was actually pointed to drug dealers, um, panders, um, people that ki- uh, butchers, people that actually killed animals. There was all this considered not li- not lively panderer, right? Isn't that a, that's a pimp? Isn't that no, no, that's a panhandler. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I, I, th- I think they're called panderers. Yeah. But anyway, the uh, pimps. You know, we're talking about pimps. So this is considered um, an unskillful livelihood. So we're avoiding these types of things. And you know, I actually just recently um, had someone who was in my life who was a lawyer. And uh, this person uh, is having a tremendous amount of suffering because they're seeing the, um, the way in which just the business of, of litigation is so damaging. And even if they're trying to do good, even if they're helping businesses, they're trying to, you know, they're really, they're actually on the good side. And it's just so much suffering caused. It's pretty amazing, actually. It's, it actually, actually was really helpful for me to kind of have compassion and just not have an instant judgment. So these are considered ethical integrity. The second group is considered uh, samadhi or concentration, right? concentration group. Um, so, the spilling out happens, why? Because we're not present with what's happening within us or around us. 
So we're working on, so we're, we're, we're trying to not spill out, and then we're trying to be more present. Wise effort. Training the mind to avoid unskillful mental states and to develop skillful mental states. This is primarily what we're learning how to do in meditation. But before you can uh, uh, develop, you have to identify. You have to recognize. Because, I don't know if you guys noticed, right? But most of the time, you're just swept away. Future, past, fantasy, history, three hours ago, replaying that. I spent a whole, a whole retreat, like a whole 10-day retreat once, once just kind of going through like eight, nine, ten years old. Just replaying over and over and over. You know, trying to stay present. Or fantasy, you know. So we're learning a lot of this kind of wise effort. Wise mindfulness. Developing the power of attentiveness, right? And awareness in regards to the four foundations of mindfulness. This is primarily what I teach. Awareness of the body. Mindfulness of the body. Uh, mindfulness of the uh, feeling states. Mindfulness of the, uh, the mind itself, the thoughts, the mental formations. And then mindfulness of uh, what's called the dharmas or the, the, the truth. This is development. And then wise concentration, the cultivation of one-pointedness over time. So wisdom is the final, the third and you know the interesting part about this panya wisdom is that um, wisdom is considered the you know the uproot altogether. So first we're you know we're working on the not spilling over, then we're working on on developing the mind, and then we're working on on uprooting greed, hatred, and delusion, destroying greed, hatred, and delusion by doing what? By increasing wisdom. Right? Greed, hatred, and delusion can actually just be capped under delusion which can just be called ignorance, right? And what happens when you come out of ignorance? What do you gain? With knowledge, some people would say. Others would say wisdom. So again, darkness and light. We're trying to increase the light. How does this happen? Wise understanding. I'm really going to break that one down because wise understanding is the knowledge of the true nature of life, right? Uh, understanding the Four Noble Truths, understanding karma, understanding rebirth, and understanding the truth of suffering. And actually, the Buddha really pointed to that that's really where you need to begin in order to set foot, in order to set foot on this path. You have to have some faith that those things are real, and that's truth there. So the last being wise thought. Um, so thought free from sense, pleasure, ill will, aggression, or ignorance. So this is inclining our mind towards the good. Okay, so this is you know just kind of a breakdown and overview of the Four Noble Truths, talking about the the uh, the middle way. There's one more story I want to kind of talk about around the loot or the middle way, which is considered the story of the loot or the uh, 
analogy of the loot. You know, the Buddha, because of the way he was trained, he was both trained as a warrior and, and trained as a musician and trained in politics and, so, and, and philosophy. And so uh, he would give examples based on, you know, to what his prior knowledge was uh, in ways that would help people understand. And so he talked a lot about, um, about instruments, right? And when he talked about the middle way, he gave this example to someone, I can't remember who right now, but uh, around, you know, just as someone who's playing the lute needs to, uh, uh, what's the word? Tight, you know, um, tune their instrument. We must tune our minds in the same way. Too tight, and the, the strings will break. Too loose, and, and the sound won't resonate. And so and the same thing needs to be true with our effort, with our mindfulness. So yeah, like a guitar. A lute is basically a guitar. So that uh, this is the middle way. To find that right or wise effort. Wise mindfulness. It's often called right effort, right mindfulness. And that's why. Because it's, it's just where it's not coming to the extremes, but finding the center. Okay. I think that's enough for today. Tomorrow we'll, or next week, we'll tackle um, First Noble Truth, the understanding of suffering, which I'm sure all of you know already, but we'll give it from the Buddhist perspective. Yeah.